Welcome to the Eastman Dental Podcast, where we hope to inspire, motivate and provide education from our guests' experience. So Josh, who's coming in this week? This week, I think we're both thrilled to say that we're joined by Jane Merivale. Jane originally wished to pursue a career as a doctor, although after missing her grades, she pursued what she describes as the next best thing, which in this case was dentistry. I had fallen in, albeit by mistake, into the career that was absolutely perfect for me. So, you know, it's one of those things in life. You think, that, that's a shame, I didn't get in. Am I a failure? And then suddenly you realise you've got into the most perfect profession. After undertaking a number of SHO jobs and going through a period of time where she was considering specialising in oral pathology, Jane and her husband set up a squat practice in the basement of their home in southeast London. Although successful, at the age of 40, Jane found herself a little lost, asking, is this really it? This feeling led her to explore alternative pathways and she began to work for a dental defence organisation. Uh, I think the most important thing is that, you know, dentists need to practice safely rather than defensively. And it's really important to contextualise to the profession quite how big the risks are because, you know, not everybody is out to get you. With your hosts, Josh Hudson and Julia Bruin. So by your own admission, you do say that your grades weren't good enough for medicine and you sort of fell into dentistry. Do you have any thoughts about what life would have been differently if you'd got into medicine? Of course. Um, My ambition to be a doctor was sort of lifelong as a child and an adolescent. So I'd strived hard and um, I fell down in one grade. And I'm really, I did three sciences and... uh, Three sciences were not really where my talents lay, but I just wanted to be a doctor. So I was very thwarted when I didn't get in for medicine because my physics was terrible and I'm no mathematician. So on that basis alone, I didn't get in for medicine. So it was a point of great sort of frustration and regret when I went to Guy's Dental School, which is where I went and met all the medics and thought that could have been me. However, Real forward in my life when I worked in an organisation with a lot of doctors and um, looked back on my career and they were looking back on their clinical careers and I realised I had fallen in, albeit by mistake, into the career that was absolutely perfect for me. So, you know, it's one of those things in life. You think, that, that's a shame, I didn't get in. Am I a failure? And then suddenly you realise you've got into the most perfect profession, which I'm been very proud to be part of and, and I still think enjoy. we have a lot of that in dentistry, don't we? We you know, do. Pe- people don't necessarily um, choose think it. that, yes, they it, don't it, choose sort of, it. it sometimes chooses them and they invariably end up being the best ones. And I've, um, I've done a straw poll when I've done a lecture recently where I've said, put your hands up, those in the room here who wanted to be doctors. And I would say more than half the room puts their hand up. Because dentistry is sort of not something people kind of grow up thinking, I've always wanted to be a dentist. Perhaps some do, but not many. So it seems to be the next best clinical thing that you can do with your science grades or whatever. And it seems you're going to treat patients, you're going to do things which are fairly medical, and it seems akin. But, of course, it's very, very different. Dentistry is extremely procedural, so you're expected to do something on everybody who walks in, etc. And um, it turned out to be a perfect 
career for me because I like people. I like doing things. I'm very creative and art and craft and making things are my kind of hobby. So suddenly I've got a kind of, you know, conflation of the things that I'm good at. And I found that that was the career, but by mistake almost. Yeah. Well, very happy coincidence. Very happy coincidence. Happy accidents. Happy accidents. But that's life, isn't it? You sometimes go through a door and you think that's the wrong door. But in actual fact, it turns out to be the right door. You can make it the right door anyway. 100%. I think a lot of the guests that we have on this podcast are people (laughs) that have done exactly that and ended up doing really interesting things because of because of walking through a door that I maybe didn't intend to to go through. Uh, so it's interesting that you say say that, but it seemed like you did still have kind of an inkling towards medicine. I know you've yes. mentioned about maybe a career in oral pathology at one point, yep. which is kind of maybe leaning a bit more towards the medicine yep. side of dentistry. Yeah. So you tell us a little bit more yep. about what led you maybe to consider that and then what got you away from that ultimately? Yes. Um, I was very swatty. As, okay. a, as a dental undergraduate. Doesn't make you a bad person, Jake. Um, it doesn't make me a bad person, <laughs> but it does mean I was rather sort of took my studies very seriously. And I absolutely loved oral medicine and pathology when I was an undergrad. And I did well. I, you know, I thrived. And uh, when it came to applying for house jobs, there was a sort of very intimidating professor of oral medicine and surgery who anybody who's studied dentistry will know of because he wrote the essentials of dentistry for dental students. And he um, had a house job going in oral pathology and I went for that job and I got it. And so I went from there to a senior house officer job in pathology and loved it. And I was good at it because you have to have a bit of a flair mm-hmm. and it's sort of matching the wallpaper. You look at slides and work out whether the slide you're looking at is you know, a particular disease, whatever. And I was loving it. However, it was at a stage in my life when... You're thinking of, you know, I was married, um, thinking of a family, broke, had no money. Um, and, you know, the, the the route to becoming an oral pathologist was at least a five-year route. And you've got to be dedicated. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I was dedicated enough. But, of course, you have to take into the round in that decision lots of other people and other factors. Mm-hmm. And I made, I think a very impulsive decision not to persist with that. And it it held more of a shadow over my career than perhaps not getting into medicine because I had That's a kind of regret that I hadn't pursued my academic career because, if if you like, I was a kind of girl most likely to in my year group because I said I was a bit swatty. Um, and, you know, I then went into practice because general practice was the way to make some money live a slightly better standard of living and, you know, to have a family. So that regret later turned into a driver, actually, because if you've got some a sense of unfulfilled potential, um, it sits there and it stimulated a change from general practice into something else. Um, so... You know, I I look back at the perversity of making the decision to give up my career in oral path because at the particular time I made that decision, the world was changing. It was the 80s and at that stage, oral pathology was a sort of minor kind of specialism that really not very many people were interested in. Uh, And it suddenly became 
boom because um, HIV and AIDS hit the deck and suddenly Kaposi sarcomas, all those kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, what was going on in the oral environment um, diagnostically suddenly became very she-she. So, you know, I saw people going over to California to pursue their careers in this particular specialism and I wasn't there. So <laughs> there I was in general practice. But as I said earlier, you know, you go through a door is it the right door? Well, you've gone through the door and there's that sort of old saying, you've made your bed, lie on it. You know, I've made my decision as compulsive as it had been at the time. Um, but I was in general practice. Uh, I did various associateships and then, of course, set up our own practice. So you've touched on it a little bit earlier when you talked about the fact that you set up your squat with your husband and essentially ran a very successful practice in South East London. Mm. But I think what I'm interested in, and I'm sure our listeners are, is about the point that makes people then suddenly question where they are, what they're doing. Mm. Perhaps you might be able to share details of that with us. Yes, it's interesting because when you look at the timeline, it's almost a cliche when it coincided with my being 40. <laughs> and you sort of think, gosh, is that a genuine midlife crisis or a mid-career crisis? Um, it certainly was a sort of, gosh, is this all I'm going to do? I'm going to go into this yeah. one room day after day until I retire, yes. working my way through the day list. Um, yeah, earning a good living, really enjoying practice in the end. Um, families, you know, we were successful, we were doing well, patients liked us, we did various refresher courses, so we were keeping our careers lively. Um, but I just thought, this is just so repetitive. And is this all there is? Anyway, yeah. um, I had a very good friend who was a medical doctor in the area in London that I lived. And she had had similar sort of thoughts and she'd started to work for uh, an indemnity organisation and I was having one of those sort of conversations that you have and she said, you know, I think you'd rather like what I'm doing um, and why don't you apply? And again, I knew nothing about it. I knew I didn't hardly know what indemnity meant other than I had I knew I had to have it, I had to pay for it, um, but I didn't know what that sort of would involve and I went and had a conversation with somebody who said yes, yeah. apply, and I did. <laughs> so talk us through that process from there then. So there was this kind of abstract idea. Yeah. Again, just another door opened, you yep. decided to go with it. And yes. then what was the, so what's the process from there? Because you said you didn't really know what it entailed, much about it. How did you then end up yep. ultimately your career going in that direction? Yeah. Um, I I didn't know much about it, but the person who approached me and then I was interviewed by was developing um, the indemnity product for dentists in this big organisation and had the idea of um, enlisting general practitioners to work with them um, in order to go into practices and meet dentists who are having some difficulty. So that was a kind of... Um, segue from me running my own practice, managing my own patients, dealing with difficult patients and all the difficulties that happen um, and using those skills and on behalf of another organisation and, you know, going into dentists' practices and giving them risk management advice. So I sort of started in a very low key way 
Um, and I didn't know where it was going to get me. It was a kind of taste it and see whether it works. A, whether I like it and whether it sits with what I'm doing in practice and B, was I any good and did the organisation think I had the wherewithal to you know, make a go of it? So I did have this kind of hybrid life for a while because I moved from being an advisor in the field, as I've just described it, to then going in-house. And most terrifying thing I did, I think, was answering the telephones, um, you know, when dentists ring up in distress. <laughs> and, um, you know, you're then the voice or the mouthpiece of a big organisation that everybody relies on. And um, I'm sort of terrified thinking, you know, here am I giving advice. But it started like that. And you learn. I mean, you know, you somebody asks a question, you don't know the answer. You go next door and say, I've just been asked this. But somebody says, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you build your knowledge. Mm. So it's very much a sort of an apprenticeship and I gradually did more and more days. And um, I was then encouraged to um, make a go of it, you know, uh, and study for a law degree. Um, a master's in law, I might qualify. I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, but I did a, a master's in law. And um, I then had to make the decision, was I going to stay in practice or was I going to sort of throw my towel in and give up a clinical career? That's a really interesting point you make mm. there. I mean, mm. I've I've often considered our indemnity providers sort of the fourth emergency service. I'm lucky enough that I've only had to call a couple <laughs> of times, but I do think that our mm. listeners would agree when we talk about them being, you know, they you do phone up in distress. So you they do. are. Yeah. So my question really is is. You worked part-time clinically Mm. and part-time advising people. Mm. Do you feel as though those jobs sort of helped each other? You know, (laughs) each job was helped by the other one that you were doing when you weren't there. Do you know, I think you can only do that sort of split for a certain length of time because they don't... I, in my experience, anyway, they didn't. one didn't enhance the other particularly. I mean, the clinical practice is an absolute, you know, essential for being a dental legal advisor and have had to have had a lot of experience. Yes. You see the sort of downside of interactions with patients when you work as a dental legal advisor. Things go wrong and you get more and more risk averse the deeper you go into the subject and the more people you help. So I began to practice it but it began to modify the way I practice. But you don't think it modified it in a good way, it oh, sounds yes, like. in a it. constructive way, but it raises your apprehension for, you know, the person who walks in who's a stranger to you, who's going to be a patient, and it undermines your trust, I think, that patients are going to be grateful, happy with what you do, satisfied even. Uh, because, I, you know, I had experienced so many situations in which Patients who, on the face of it, had appeared to be entirely pleasant and satisfied and then had turned into be some, somebody who wasn't. So I just began to get a bit w- w- weary and worried yeah. by it. Um, and, you know, you learn all about record keeping and so you kind of transform the way you keep clinical records because you, you're minded as to what would happen to these records if somebody read them to try and piece together the transaction. So you think just it would happened. be quite useful for people to just have an hour of <laughs> yes, observing a, a dental legal advisor 
Um, Too just, much of it is a bad thing yes. in the sense that you just get a sort of slightly jaundiced view of yeah. what the, the world out there is about. Whereas when I look back to my early clinical career, I was very ambitious for my patients. You know, I'd look at a thing, I'd think, well, I've learned how to do that. I'll make that bridge. I'll do that root canal, whatever. And then it's all about maturity in your professional life as well. It's not mm. necessarily about being a dental legal advisor, but, you know, I began to be a bit more risk averse, shall we say, and a bit yeah. more cautious in the treatment planning and that yes. sort of thing. Do you think that's something that's more common in more recent graduates? Yeah. Just generally? I think so, because I think when I graduated, I can remember in that sort of brief period from between when you finished your exams and you actually leave, there's a sort of a few weeks of sort of um, introduction to the real world and you meet the indemnity providers and so forth and you learn about what's called the General Dental Council, <laughs> yeah. which you've never heard of before up until that point, when in my day you hadn't anyway. But I do think that undergraduates now are taught a lot more about fitness to practice and indeed they're scrutinised um, by the same filter as an undergraduate as you are um, in, in practice. Yeah. So, you know, students are aware and um well enter the enter the profession i think with a more cautious approach some of them do some of them just think woohoo <laughs> let's go. go so you don't Give miss me that drill. you don't you don't miss <laughs> clinical dentistry um I don't miss the procedural side of clinical dentistry because I think you have to be it's like playing a piano you have to play it regularly to be good at it yeah. And unless you're doing a lot of it, you, it doesn't flow. So, um, you know, I'm not daft. I wouldn't go back and think, well, I could go in tomorrow and do some clinical dentistry. I could do some emergency dentistry, I'm sure. Um, but I didn't miss leaving that world behind. I'd done my porridge. I'd, you know, been a practice owner, worked hard and long and, you know, had some ups and downs in that yes. and it was time for a change and I had seriously begun to think what else could I do you know if I'm not going to be a dentist anymore could I consider any other career what could I do in my early 40s so you know the opportunity to work in indemnity came at a very timely point in my life yeah and I loved it and I happened to land into um, a group of you know, I would call, I call them charismatic people, in particular the, the director under whom I worked who gave me lots of opportunities to do things which, you know, in my little room that I'd been in for all those years, drilling, filling and billing, um, suddenly I'm given a scope to do all sorts of things. So lecturing, writing, I created um, various sort of films, I scripted and wrote um, risk management films and had a huge amount of fun. So your legacy is out there. It's out there, <laughs> yes, on the record. <laughs> um, you know, so I had a lot of fun, as well as suddenly, instead of having a handful of colleagues, well, you know, a, an associate and a practice partner and the nurses, suddenly I'm working in an organisation with a load of people of all yes. different skills and beyond the organisation uh, working with solicitors and barristers and going into, you know, the ends of court to do very meetings. Very privileged position, It's a really. very privileged position. It, it, you know, I think you're it dealing, is. you know, you're dealing with people's livelihoods, aren't you, really? Yeah, their registration is everything. I mean, claims come and go, that's about money. 
but um, your registration is absolutely essential. Without it, you can't practice, and that's the nub of the job. So you have to have a real heart for people because the role of the DLA, Dental Legal Advisor, is to help a clinician understand what the law wants to do with you and um, how that applies. And, you know, it's really helpful, I think, to a dentist to have somebody hold their hand who's also been a dentist through that very sort of mysterious process. And the language of the law is, you know, very complicated and it doesn't mean much to your average clinician. But to have somebody who's on their side and batting for them and trying to get the best and most favourable outcome, it's a privilege to have that role. There but for the grace of God go all of us because it could have been, you could have had a difficult patient who, you know, turn the tables on you and you could find yourself that in that position. So I think it's interesting that Josh said, do you think it affects the the younger um, graduates more? And I, I, I don't know what it is. I think perhaps just generally we're becoming more litigious, aren't we? And, and people are yeah, for sure. expecting patients to be, and they're sort of slightly yeah. on the back foot with everybody, aren't they? Yeah, I think I was, you know, I was, I suppose, young and innocent and naive and thought patients would be, pleased that I could do what I could do for them. I didn't think the patient is my enemy, um, but I do think young um, graduates now are more wary um, on the whole, more more risk averse. And do you think that's detrimental for the patients ultimately? Because uh, if you're practicing really uh, defensively and you're all you're worried about is your record keeping and mm not doing anything that you're not really experienced in, there's probably a lot of patients that are missing out on a lot of treatment that they could have had if somebody wasn't so wary. Do you you see that or do you? Uh, I think the most important thing is that, you know, dentists need to practice safely rather than defensively. And it's really important to contextualise to the profession quite how big the risks are because, you know, not everybody is out to get you. And indeed, if you start to look at the statistics of the number of times you might be sued over the course of a career, I mean, it's very small, um, and therefore I think that's people... lovely and reassuring yeah. to hear for our listeners <laughs> yeah. because have to some of them may be um, listening, thinking, mm-hmm, yeah, no, God, you just "How often to, is this going to be happening to me?" You just have to realise that it's it's um, it's important to build your skills, to remain competent at what you do, get really good at dentistry, and keep being good at dentistry. You learn the soft skills, you learn how to communicate. You learn how to keep better, better records. But fundamentally, you've got to be good at dentistry because if your dentistry works and it doesn't fall apart, the patients are happy. Very true. <laughs> Very true. So you ended up doing this law degree later in life, I yes. think it's fair to say. So first of all, what was that like? How, how was that, that experience after being out of education for a while and then going yeah. into education? And is that something that's, that's essential? If somebody listening is thinking, oh, I think maybe I'll do a little get into that dental legal kind of field is is that an essential element that somebody needs to strive towards to get into that field or is there other paths within that it's a question i'm asked a lot um you know because people are keen to do what i do and i get lots and lots of emails and telephone calls saying you know i'd really like to do the job you're doing how could i do mm. it do i need to have done a special degree So um, the answer is it's not a prerequisite to begin with because still in the same time-honoured way I did it, which is sort of through a kind of apprenticeship approach, um, 
the essential thing is that you're experienced. You've done a, you know ten years or so in in practice, so that you really do understand dentistry and some postgraduate qualifications in an area of specialism are of benefit mm-hmm. to the defence organisations because you know to have an inside knowledge of you know specialist endodontic practice, for example, would be really beneficial. Anyway, but when you worked in uh, in the field for a while, I think it becomes apparent that you need to have a much better understanding of the law. So it was put to me that, you know, you really need to consider doing a law <laughs> degree, Jane. So I thought, oh, heck. And I was a bit frightened because although I was saying earlier that I was a bit swatty, I had not studied <laughs> for a long time. I'd been raising kids and trying to keep the practice going. And that was, you know, my challenge. And then all of a sudden, um, there I am on the train going to um, Cardiff, which is where I studied um, on a, in a part-time way. I did weekends away. It was a course structured in that way so I could sort of make everything work and I arrived in this group of extremely young people some people who sort of almost called me mum (laughs) and my use of technology at that point was I could send an email but that was about it I mean word processing forget it you know I just didn't know anything so I, I was on the first day at Cardiff I can remember being shown around the building and said would you like to see the library so I said I'd love to see the library go into the library and of course there isn't a book not a book in sight so I'm yeah. thinking I'm gonna have to really brace myself and get my head around all of this technology so because all the um coursework was set online. I mean, everybody thinks this is hilarious now. I mean, look at us, we all work remotely. Um, but at that time, you know, I'm going back quite a long time now. I suddenly had the challenge of sitting and um, working out how to use the technology and reading a lot. I mean, anybody who does anything to do with the law, it is very, very wordy. And you have to read and read. And I thought, gosh, I must be really dense. I have to read that again because I really don't understand it. So it was a challenge. But, of course, these kind of challenges are very good for your your brain, neuroplasticity and all of that. So, you know, suddenly I'm re-educating myself. And um, the the legal aspects of medical practice course that I did was brilliant as a general education, regardless of whether it's got a, an application for dentistry. It's a hugely interesting subject where you do a lot of stuff around beginning of life and conception and all the legality of that, end of life decisions, healthcare rationing, you name it. It's a huge subject. And I was taken out of my box which was up until that point, you know, MOD restorations and prolonged gum treatments and bite wings. And all of a sudden, I'm, you know, I'm learning about the law and the law underpins society. And so as a general education, the law degree was great. And in terms of its application for the job that I was doing, I think vital because you have to, you know, read all these um statutes, laws, all the regulations which dentists don't want to read. They want you to point them (laughs) to the clause that says what they can and can't do. So you do have to get proficient at understanding the way the law works, but you're not a lawyer. So at the point at which a dentist needs a lawyer, you instruct a lawyer or a barrister. So with your dental legal hat on, (laughs) do you think there's anything that the dental profession should either sort of start doing or stop doing? Big question. 
Mm. And maybe not the forum to go into too much detail. I suppose um, I would suggest that particularly young dentists think very carefully about their use of social media because... You say dentists, but I mean, perhaps we ought to broaden that to the the whole um, team, team, really. You know, just because there there may be some groups that may be (laughs) more... uh, Chatty on their social media. Yes, yeah. So I think that, um, you know, the adage that never write anything down that you don't want anybody else to read... We used to perhaps know that when we were growing up, when we wouldn't commit to paper things we didn't want to, anybody else to see. Yes. But social media is a very easy mechanism for communicating with one another. And it's hugely humiliating if that um, those the transcripts of social media chats emerge in the course of a case. And I don't think anybody quite realises how disclosable Um, these things can be. So, you know, various people can say we need to see, for example, the WhatsApp chat between you and a colleague, you and a patient, etc. Well, certainly we've had cases in the police force and that sort of thing where that's been... So that's one big watch out, I think. Think carefully and maintain professional boundaries. I think this is something that increasingly seems to be an area of risk um, that people... People aren't deporting themselves as a professional person through social media and they unwittingly um, allow a patient to um, engage with them through, say, for example, a WhatsApp. And before you know where you are, you're trying to resolve things through that mechanism or indeed you're chatting and getting overly friendly with people for whom you're you have a particular role. So I think be careful about social media. That's a big watch out. Um, And as I was saying to Josh earlier, um, start as you mean to go on, keep honing your clinical skills, maintain the quality of what you do and the interest in what you do. Because, um, you know, good dentistry stands up and is not criticised if it works, but when things fail because you haven't, you know, continued to hone your skills, um, that's a very important risk management tool, yes. which I don't think the dental defence organisations talk enough about. They talk a lot about record keeping and soft skills and managing difficult people and all of this sort of thing. But actually, you know, you really if anybody's listening and worried about what I've been talking about in the dental legal context be good at dentistry, work on that skill and everything else follows. Don't cut corners and, of course, document what you're doing. I just want to take a step back for a second. So we were talking about that point in your career where there was this decision to step away from clinical dentistry. And I'm Mm. conscious that the part of what we're doing with this podcast is is making people think a little bit differently about what they're doing. And, And maybe there might be some listeners who are in that position that you were in at that point who might be thinking, actually, I want to do something different. I've, mm. I'm fed up of clinical dentistry. Yeah. I can't do this for, for five days a week uh, going forward. What advice would you give to somebody who's in that position based on your experience? Is there any anything insight that you can give to somebody who might be thinking that? I think it's particularly important now that we've 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 all we're all staying at home a lot more when we're not actually in the practice um, because of what the pandemic's done to us. 
And I think we need to get out there and network and, and keep networking because it's when you meet other people in your profession um, who are doing a variety of things. So it's now increasingly common that dentists are curating a portfolio career. By that, I mean are doing different things on different days to keep themselves interested and to keep themselves productive and effective in their career to, you know, not do as I was doing, which was rather a lot of practice um, day after day and wearing wearing you down. Interestingly, I think there's a trend among certainly associate dentists I see to not work full time. Why would I do this full time, they yeah. say. Um, yeah, whereas, you that's... know, I worked six days a week when we started our practice. Good. We did eight till eight in terms of the hours and we often worked on a Saturday because it was our practice. We needed to pay off that overdraft that we had to have to, mm. you know, equip the thing. And we worked too hard. Um, and nowadays, I don't think people are prepared to do that. I think they think, no, I want more interest. So how do you get that? Well, it's by meeting other people, learning what they do, hopefully listening to things like this. There are Dentistry, the BDS qualification opens a lot of doors and you can do a lot with it. Um, and, um, you know, you have to find out what those uh, opportunities are. And really the best way is to you know, ask other practitioners what they're doing and how they're doing it. How did you get into that? Join your local BDA section meeting, go and talk to dentists there. There'll be all sorts of different careers represented. Um Go to seminar days now. Go and attend in person. Don't just do all your CPD yeah. online. Because as soon as you start to chat to people in the coffee break and you discover what they're doing, somebody's you know developing a new software tool for record keeping, for example, and you suddenly think, oh, I think I can do that. Or somebody else is writing. So in meeting lots of people who different thing, do different things, um, you can be stimulated and think, actually, I think I could do that. How did you do that? You will ask. So, you know, some people work for NHS England. Some people go and do a more bureaucratic job. Other people travel and, you know, work abroad and do all sorts of um, voluntary things and so forth. No, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's just doing different things, isn't it? Yeah. That, that, that's the key thing. Is that there are lots of different things that you can do. Yeah. And if you've got your eyes and your ears open yeah. and, and listen to them, yeah. then then we can all be inspired. And that, like you say, Josh, that's what this podcast's about, isn't it? This is about us interviewing people that are doing different things as well as their sort of chosen, if you like, their chosen registered qualification. Exactly, yeah. And I speak to a lot of... Um, newly qualified uh, dental professionals and quite often they ask me advice about jobs and things and I always say if there's something a little bit different then go do it you can go do it for a couple of years there's always mm. going to be practice that's that's always going to mm. be there mm. but like you say it's trying to get variety in what you're doing figuring out what you like and what you don't like because you can't really pursue what you like until you've tried a few things and then yeah building building your building your career from there I think that's great advice so I know at different points we've talked about um, you're moving away from practice, but I'm, I'm interested to hear that was a, a, a big part of your career and it must have been exciting to start up your own practice and all of the different things that come with that. So can you tell us a little bit more about that process of 
starting the practice and building it to, to where you ultimately got it to. Hmm. Yes, because when I started in practice, inevitably I worked as an associate in other people's practices and quite a few. And I think one of the the tips I could give any young dentist is to go and work in a number of practices and see what it's like because different practices are run in different ways. And it became increasingly apparent to me that I wanted to do it my own way. I wanted to, for example, to work in a practice that looked in the way I wanted it to look. I wanted my colours on the wall, yeah. my taste. Um, I didn't want to sort of feel semi-apologetic for the sort of chaos in which I was working. I just wanted it to look good. I wanted the stationery to look nice. I wanted the staff to be, you know, my staff. I just wanted it to be ours. And my husband shared that ambition and we didn't really hesitate um, when you look back, you think, gosh, that was terribly brave. We had no money and we're borrowing money on the back of this qualification we haven't had very long <laughs> and we just have the confidence to start our own business. And when I now talk to my kids who, as I say, work in startups, um, I realise I did a startup. It, it wasn't called that, but it was a bold move to literally put up your brass plate outside the door because in those days you couldn't advertise. You were only the General Dental Council stipulated you could only have a brass plate of certain dimensions outside you could, and you could have one line entry in the yellow pages and, you know, try it, for, you know, see how you go. So um, it was, we found, you know, a, the house that we could put it into because you could get, plan, you didn't need planning permission, you could just have rooms in a house. And you, of course, lived so on the premises. Lived, <laughs> I mean, we lived that, on the premises. Yeah, I mean, that must be quite hard, mustn't it? Because we lived actually... on the premises. It was hilarious, really, because um, the it was a fairly dilapidated house. It looked nice from the outside, but inside it was badly in need of renovation. And we renovated. It's all right, you did it your way, so it was all right. In the, the end, it was patient, all all right. patients could see. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had a blank book and uh, hope for the best. Um, and, you know, we had to equip the room. So it's, it's great fun looking through the catalogues and thinking, you know, starting with a blank room, what do I need in order to do dentistry? Um, so all of that was very thrilling and scary, but, you know, thrilling. And um, the accountant told me how much money I needed to earn per month to break even. And we thought, oh, I wonder how long it's going to take to even break even. And you know, the calculation was within about three months, we had just about broken even on our loans and so forth. So, you know, it happened and it was great to do it our way. And of course, the systems that we work in in practice, um, if you're working for a boss who says you've got to work at a certain pace and charge in a certain way, that's quite restrictive. If you think, um, I know how much I've got to earn, but I'm going to earn it in the way I want to. And I'm going to see the patients at the pace that I want to see them. Um, and it's suddenly your own shout. That's great. And it's exciting. And, you know, you've built a business from nothing. Yeah, I can. I can. But hand in that. hand goes <laughs> all the the scary bits, which is, you know, you are suddenly accountable for everything. The buck stops with you. You can't say yes. to that difficult person go somewhere else. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to sort of see this through. You've got to hire. But you don't regret it, do you? No, no, yeah. don't regret it. Yeah. It was just hard work to, I think it's the sort of amalgamation of the business of dentistry with the practice of dentistry. 
Yes. And you have to have, you know, a fairly sound business head to make it work. And, you know, I, by my own confession, I'm not particularly interested in business. I'm not, I mean, you, I'm commercially minded enough, but I'm not hugely yeah. commercial. And, I mean, many people I qualified with went on to, you know, hugely successful careers in monetary terms because they had a very clear business sort of drive or they came from a family that knew how business worked. Um, yeah. So I, I didn't like that much. I didn't like the... No, it's, it's, a, it's a good, honest story about, you know, setting up your own practice because, of course, you know, now dental professional there there is no barriers anybody can set up a practice now yes. you know you can be yes. a part share as yes. a dental nurse yes. in in a high street dentist and yes. of course many years ago the practice of dentistry or the business of dentistry rather was limited only to dentists mm. and that was quite a seismic change with yes. the general dental council yes. um of course it didn't you know suddenly <laughs> get a whole flurry of um, people setting up practices but it certainly did change you know the differences um hmm. within general practice i think that yeah and there's a lot of pride in having your own place and seeing your name above the door and making it work um yes well i certainly remember that day very fondly those people who yeah. will remember checks i remember my patient my first patient when i set up my practice 16 years ago when he said who do i make the check payable to and i said me <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It is a, that is a nice feeling. Yeah. Thank you very, very much, Jane, for coming in. It's been a real pleasure having you part of the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. We would love to hear your suggestions for future guests. Remember to follow us on social media using hashtag the Eastman Dental Podcast. And if you like what you hear, please rate, share, subscribe and listen out for future episodes. Mm-hmm.